Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. When I started this, I, like every other filmmaker, wanted to go to Sundance or go to the Tribeca Film Festival or go to a South by Southwest. And what I realized as I got rejection after rejection after rejection is that wasn't my fate. And my motto with this project was I have to make my own splash and I can't look for those outlets to verify me. Whatever is driving us or attracting us to our stories, we should figure out how to explode that into, you know, our connection and, and, and learning as much as we can about whatever is driving us to it. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 66, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. For this week's show, I spoke with certified public accountant, DePaul University professor, and documentary filmmaker Kelly Richmond Pope. Kelly came highly recommended by two past guests that we've had here on the show, Gordon Quinn, founder of Cartemquin, and another Cartemquin alum who was on the program a bit more recently, filmmaker Margaret Byrne. They felt that there were some very specific topics that she could speak directly to that would resonate well with you guys. They weren't initially specific about those topics, but from what they knew about the show, and certainly having been on the show, and what they knew about the listeners of the program, they both seemed to feel strongly that she could speak well to the experiences and concerns of many doc filmmakers. The research that I would do about Kelly, it led me to her current film, All the Queen's Horses, which has been making some noise on the festival circuit. And by the number of screenings, past and present, listed on her website, it seems to be having some very good success. And of course, there was information about her background in accountancy, and apparently she was some kind of expert in fraud. Her film, All the Queen's Horses, actually deals with a woman who committed the biggest municipal fraud in the history of the U.S., but we'll get to that in a bit. But other than that, I didn't find a ton of information. Now, certainly the angle of someone who's a professor and very well-respected in the community of accountancy and fraud, now also becoming a doc filmmaker, that's very interesting, absolutely. And I greatly looked forward to delving into the doc life aspects of this with Kelly. However, it wasn't until I received a hot tip, if you will, from our friend Margaret Byrne, and then through the course of my conversation with Kelly, that I'd learned just what an interesting, diverse documentary life that Kelly Richmond Pope was leading. We'd end up talking about how she discovered the definition of success as a filmmaker, that it was vastly different from what she'd always heard or that the traditional means of being accepted into the doc filmmaking community, a la Sundance and three picture deals with Hollywood, that it was not the path that she would take to her own success as a doc filmmaker. And that in fact, it was rejection after rejection after rejection that would lead her to a newer, far more interesting and impactful way of living her documentary life. A documentary life that has seen distribution of her film in a multitude of fascinating ways and to a greater audience than she'd ever expected. I think that you'll find her story will serve to inspire you in ways that you quite possibly have yet to have been inspired by on this show. I know that it gave me a renewed sense of freedom and hope that I've long been yearning for in my own doc life. So I definitely look forward to bringing you that conversation shortly. 
Now, something I'd like to bring up here is how I came around to Kelly and her work. Again, it was through the recommendation of two fine guests who we've had here on the show. And by the way, you can check out our episodes with Gordon Quinn by going back into the TDL archives and listening to episode number 44. My show with Margaret was just a couple of weeks ago. It was episode number 64. All of these shows can be heard by going to the documentarylife.com website and clicking up there on the, um, on the podcast tab. Anyhow, it was through Gordon and Margaret's recommendation that I was turned on to, you know, this potential guest who might be great for the show. And you'll see just how great soon enough. I bring this up because I wanted to give you some idea of how I go about bringing guests onto the documentary life. Of course, I try and stay on top of happenings here in the doc world as much as I can. I align myself daily, whether it be through social media or emails or phone calls, with persons and, and groups who are doing important work you know, in the doc sphere. I do as best I can to keep up with festivals that are happening, docs that are making noise on the festival circuits. I try and seek out the other types of experts who are making a difference in documentary, whether it be... Uh, a professional grant writer, an entertainment lawyer specializing in documentary, or a writer of a great book on documentary thought or technique. But of course, it's impossible to know everything that's happening in the world of doc, or at least to be always aware of it. It's impossible to know of all the people who are making great films all over the world. So a lot of the time, I'll rely on other guests for recommendations, or I'll directly ask you guys who might be helpful to your own doc lives or your doc films. Anyone who's emailed me has probably gotten some form of this question in my email reply to them. A couple of weeks back, we posted a query up on the TDL community Facebook group asking for topics or guest suggestions. I promise you that each and every one of these has been duly noted. If we too believe that it would be helpful for other doc lifers to hear about a suggested topic or from a recommended guest, then we will or have already contacted them. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're always successful. Some people just don't write back, although I'd say that we have a pretty high percentage of replies from most people. And we are pretty proud of that because it means that this show is starting to become more and more recognized and respected by the industry. This is a tightly knit, knowledgeable, motivated, and rapidly growing community of doc lifers we have here at TDL. Some upcoming guests that I'll mention here right now. Just this past week, we've recorded with the producer of the Netflix doc series, Flint Town, and the directors of another new hit Netflix series, Wild Wild Country. Again, I mention this because I want you to know that we are hearing you, and we take your suggestions very seriously. We, of course, may not get to all of them, but we're very conscious of balancing what and who you are asking for and who we think might best serve doc lifers as a whole. I'll also note here, I'm not simply talking about doc industry guest suggestions. Topic recommendations are also very helpful, and they're needed. For the most part, each episode is broken up into two segments, with one segment led by myself, talking about a particular topic, and it's followed by the doc guest segment. And as you know, this year, we've made an attempt to really bring these two segments together into one more coherent theme for a given episode. And so please... Keep those emails and suggestions on the TDL Community Facebook group. Keep them coming. We're compiling a list. And if you haven't already done so, I'd highly recommend joining up with the TDL Community group today. It's free and it's super easy to get to. Simply search the Documentary Life Community in Facebook or you can visit our show notes for this episode and we'll post a direct link to the page. It's a pretty cool community that's, that's really growing by the day and I think you'll find lots of other people in there helping one another out. Speaking of emails, we've received some really nice ones lately. I've always maintained since day one that I will do my absolute best to answer each and every email that we receive. Now, these days, admittedly, we're receiving a bit more emails, but I'm still, knock on wood, able to keep up my paces, though it may just take a little longer than in the past for me you know, to get back to you guys. I'd actually like to take a moment to share a couple of listeners' emails with you that not only, not only meant a lot for us to receive, but I believe will go a long way in making us feel, as a community, a whole heck of a lot less lonelier. And we doc filmmakers, we could use a little more of that, eh? This first one comes from a Clayton in Philadelphia, PA, here in the U.S. 
It reads, Mr. Parkhurst, last night I worked an overnight shift at a grocery store. I'm paying my way through college in Philadelphia. I started out my journey to the documentary life through broadcast journalism. After interning at a high-end news facility, I decided that wasn't the route I wanted to pursue. I began working on sports documentaries at my college on the women's basketball team. Currently, I'm working on a docuseries on the team as my senior seminar project. Last night, I found your podcast. I listened to the first nine episodes back to back throughout the night and found so much inspiration and motivation throughout them. Thank you for making this podcast and providing aspiring directors and producers like myself with the fuel to keep pushing forward. Sincerely, a 22-year-old college senior named Clayton. Well, Clayton, I'm honored that you would take the time to write us, to share with us a little bit about your own journey with documentary. I think that all of us find some inspiration and motivation in hearing from someone like yourself. The image of a university student paying their way through college by working the graveyard shift at a grocery store and discovering our podcast and listening to nine episodes back to back to back, it just blew us away. Honestly, I think that Steph and I both teared up a little bit when we read that one aloud over the weekend. It's great to have someone like yourself as part of our Doc Life or Community Clayton. And I think that I mentioned to you in a follow-up email, we'll actually be in the Philly area in July uh, attending Podcast Movement 2018. And we're going to be putting together a Philly meetup as we know that we have some listeners of the program who are living their Doc lives in that historical city. So definitely look for that, anyone in the Philadelphia area. Okay, let's read another one. Hi, Chris. My name is Luther Clayton. I am a 16-year-old adventure filmmaker and made my first documentary series about the outdoors last summer. It was a crazy experience. Being so young, many people think that you can't succeed or chase your dreams, that you have to wait until adulthood has set in to do such a thing. I never believed in that. My doc series reached thousands of people all over the world. National parks here in the UK have offered to work with me, and my skills within filmmaking have grown exponentially. I love that you are supplying such a great podcast in a niche of filmmaking that is rarely talked about. It's great to be on the bus on my way to school and be able to continue learning my craft, and for that I'd like to thank you. My message to anyone out there is to go for it. No matter what society or the filmmaking community might think, if you have a great idea for your own doc, go for it and make it. It will bring you so much positivity. And to all the young filmmakers out there, keep hustling and doing your thing. You're ahead of the game. Thanks so much, Chris. If you would like to check my series I made last year, here is the link. And I'm going to go ahead and actually post that link for anybody out there that wants to check out Luther's series. I'll go ahead and post it within the show notes for this episode. <laughs> Again, another great image here. A 16-year-old on the bus listening to this podcast and being inspired to get out there and make his documentary series happen. I'm sorry, but how cool is that? And by the way, this was a first receiving an email from a teenager. So that in itself was pretty cool. And as you might suppose from this email, Luther is far from an ordinary teenager. Not only is he out there putting his money where his mouth is, he is in this very email trying to inspire other young filmmakers to get out there and do the same. I feel that I have a special and rare experience that I need to share with others to share this childlike curiosity that has been stolen from us as we age. If you can so keep it, these kinds of emails coming, guys. Keep the support coming, whether it be through direct emails to me or through the free TDL Community Facebook group or through your social media or, or even person-to-person -person with other doc filmmakers. Let's keep supporting and networking with one another because that is very much at the heart of what we're trying to achieve here on The Documentary Life each and every episode, one episode at a time. And speaking of being inspired, get ready for that illuminating conversation with fellow doc lifer Kelly Richmond Pope. It's coming up next here on The Documentary Life.
After I premiered my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu, a film that took nearly five years to make, I remember feeling elated and exhausted. Is there any other feeling like the first time you show your completed doc film to an audience? I don't think there is. Not long after, I took a well-deserved short break away from the city, and it was while I was on a hike, when I had reached a mountaintop and was overlooking the Great Columbia River, that I found myself thinking back on the film and the journey that I'd been on. I thought about all the mistakes I'd made, all the wins that I'd had, how it had felt to finally share my film with an audience, and I thought about the life it would have from here on out. And I began to break down all the components of what had gotten me to where I was at that moment, and all the things I wished I'd done differently. And this is how I began to form what I am sharing with you today, a free course entitled The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. In the Essential Checklist, I share with you the fundamental aspects of making a documentary film, and perhaps most importantly, help you to avoid making some of the mistakes that I made during my first feature film. It is my sincere hope that The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist will help make your doc film's journey the truly exhilarating experience that it can and should be. It's yours simply by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses and enrolling for free. I am happy to be joined today by documentary filmmaker Kelly Richmond Pope. Kelly, welcome to the program. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation. We've actually had a couple of other guests here in the past, I don't know, within the past year, certainly, here on The Documentary Life, and your name has come up from both of them. I've been excited to speak with you, so so thank you for joining us today on The Documentary Life. Thank you for having me. Kelly, we'll obviously get into your films here shortly, but we tend to kind of uh, love to get backgrounds on our guests that come on the program. And what's really interesting to me is that your background didn't, it sounds like your background didn't necessarily start in, in video or film at all. And so I would love to hear what led you to, to telling documentary stories. Well, I am an accountant. I'm a CPA. Yeah. Um, so I'm a certified public accountant. And um, I am a lifelong educator. So I have a PhD in accounting. I'm an accounting professor at DePaul University. And um, I teach accounting with film and TV. And I've been doing that for years because, as I like to tell my students, numbers tell the best stories. (laughs) So I, um, I think my profession brought me to documentary filmmaking. And I think that they are one and the same because mm. numbers tell the best stories. Mm. And so now I learned how to take those numbers and pair that with people that have the expertise in shooting and editing and sound design and graphic art and just to make those accounting numbers come to life. But um, I am a professor. I'm an accounting professor by training. Now, what's interesting is it seems to me, given your background in accountancy and financing and your probably interests and passions in those subjects, it led you to the type of stories and the type of subjects that you would start tackling in your documentary films. And I believe starting with your first educational documentary, Crossing the Line, Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crimes. I would say that is true. Um, I think that, yes, my profession is what led me to the types of films. Mm. So I am, and and I'm pretty hardcore about my interest in fraud, white collar crime, yeah. um, financial crime, and a decision making as it relates to business types of decisions. Hmm. So, yes. Why being drawn to that material? Why you're so passionate about, about white collar crimes and, and, and exploring that? Well, um, I think that it's it impacts everyone's life. And so I think that oftentimes we, we live or we think about things in a very siloed fashion. But when it really comes down to it, there's the conversation always ends at money, no matter what the profession is, no matter what the industry is. If you're talking about farming, if you're talking about artwork, it all comes back down to money. Mm. And so I think that understanding money and films about money is almost like a universal language. So so I think that on the one hand, it sounds like I'm being very um, segmented myself, but it really is applicable 
to so many different disciplines. Mm. And so what I've learned through my current project, All the Queen's Horses, is it attracts everybody. Mm. It's not just the accounting community. It's the city managers. It's the <laughs> equestrian community. It's the kids that are in, in a student government. You know, any everybody manages and touches money. So it ends up being a very universal type film and type subject. Mm -hmm. Is making films for educational purposes, is that a very conscious decision on your part? And I ask that given sort of this idea of a natural tie-in with what you do as an educator. I, I think so. I mean, I think documentary for sure, because... Yeah. I think it you you we love documentaries so much because we're learning something and we're learning something in a quasi entertaining way mm. and we walk away from that hour and a half or 2 hours that we've invested and we've learned something. So I think they go one in they're one in the same. Excellent. And and you know I I do want to back up for a minute cuz something you said earlier that maybe I, I would love to hear a little bit more about is did you say that film and TV or film and video has been a part of your curriculum in the classroom as well? Absolutely. Okay. It's been a part of the curriculum for a very long time. I use um, Shark Tank pitches in my classes to teach managerial accounting. Uh, okay. And if you ever watch Shark Tank, what you'll always notice is they'll ask them, um, what's your cost? What's your margin? Mm. And those are accounting terms that they're using. Um, when did you break even? Are you making any money? Are you at a loss? Those are accounting terms. Mm. And so I can take those pitches and build a whole lecture around it. Um, another show that I use is the CNBC show, The Profit. And I've actually had the pleasure of meeting the host, Marcus Limonis, several times. And that whole show is an accounting show mm. because what they're doing is they're going into a business and they're trying to save it. But first, we have to figure out how much investment is Marcus going to make? How much ownership, equity ownership, is he going to uh, have of the business? Um, what are their costs? What are their margins? You know, so those are all accounting terms. Restaurant startup, they're talking about managing a budget. So there's so much um, richness in some of our current content that I use it in class and have been using it for a long time. Well, I would think that you would be the person to speak to about budgeting on one's documentary film. And I say <laughs> that, Kelly, because speak directly to to our audience here of doc filmmakers. What have you learned in in doing films like, you know, Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crimes and, and your current doc, All the Queen's Horses? What have you learned perhaps that you could impart to our doc filmmakers that they might not really necessarily be aware of when they're putting together things like budgets or their grant proposals that have to have budgets with it? What are some mistakes that you might think doc filmmakers are making that someone like yourself is not going to make or would be able to help us not make? in the future? Well, in terms of the budget, one of the things that I think that I learned early on is we tend to underestimate and under budget everything. <laughs> and the Don't best <laughs> thing to do, the best thing to do is overestimate and go for the most expensive option. Because I think when we're putting together a budget or we're putting together a proposal, we think that if we come in just a little bit lower, mm. then that'll make us look a little bit more competitive. Right. And really that ends up shooting you in the foot because you it's better to have a little extra money at the end than to run out of money. And we never ran out of money. We we oh, wow. were completely right on budget, right on target with almost everything that we did. Mm. But I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes is remembering that everything costs twice as much and takes twice as long. She completely pulled the wool over her town's eyes. Do you think you were just smarter than everybody else, Rita? 53 plus million dollars is just unbelievable. She lived quite a life, totally different life than what she portrayed here. By day, she's wearing municipal clothes, and by night, she's dripping with jewels and furs. World champion, Rita Crunwell. She had this grand, high-stakes horse empire. My first thought was, Dixon has that much money that you could embezzle that much money from a little tiny place like this? People distrusted her so well, more than anything. <laughs> Rita, how did you go to bed and not think, whose lives I'm infecting here? 
one of the things the FBI wanted to find out was, did she do this alone? Was she hiding for somebody else? Twenty years I worked side by side with this woman, and I never knew her. I never really knew her. Let's talk a bit about all the Queen's horses now. This has been, I would say, a, a pretty breakthrough film in terms of your filmmaking part of your career. And uh, I, I would love to hear where the initial concept and idea for Queen's Horses came from, how you heard about the story, and why you felt it's a story that you needed to tell. Well, I before all the Queen's Horses started, I was going around the country and I still do this. I go and interview uh, white-collar felons, whistleblowers, and victims of fraud. Yeah. And I take those interviews and use them in my class, mm. whether I'm using them for um, creating um, video-enhanced cases or for my podcast, Nothing But The Truth. So I either use audio or video. Mm. But um, when this story happened, I thought, wow, this, is, this, is, this will make a great documentary. So I applied to the Cartemquin Diverse Voices and Docs program, their inaugural class, right. and developed this project there. And so I, what I realized as the story played out in the media, and, and this is typical with fraud cases, is the focus was this one person stole this money and lived this lavish lifestyle. <laughs> but, the com but the conversation of how this happened and that it can happen anywhere and by anyone hmm. was never discussed. And that to me is where the film picks up. And that's the, that's the voice that I thought that was left out and that people needed to know. This isn't a story about this small teeny town called Dixon. Right. This is a story of any town USA, yes. anybody USA, or really anywhere, anywhere globally. Indeed. So I thought that, that that message needed to come out. Generally, a director who's in a film or as a narrator has a connection to the film and its content. Hearing it now, it seems obvious to me your, your connection is the passion that you have for, for telling and exploring these types of white-collar crimes. In terms of putting yourself and narrating the film, where did that come into play? Did you always know that you were going to have a voice in that form? Well, as, as we were doing the editing, I felt like, the story needed a narrator. And although it wasn't, the, the story was never, I'm chasing down this story, but I felt like um, who best to narrate and describe what's happening. Hmm. You know, in, in terms of budgeting, we couldn't afford to pay a voiceover artist. And I felt yeah. like if I'm gonna write the script, I might as well say it. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it, it just made sense given my background. Mm to be the one, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher at heart. Yeah. So explaining concepts in the most simplistic way to help a large group of people understand something is sort of what I naturally do. Right, so it right. just made sense that um, I would be in the film, I would be narrating the film. Yeah. I think the fact that I have a PhD in accounting, I'm a CPA, I'm also CFE, a certified fraud examiner. Mm -hmm. um, it made sense for that person to be me. So I think um, what might be different from most directors is they may be telling a story, but they may not have a connection to the story. And so my connection to the story is this is what I teach. Mm. This is what I research. Mm. This is what I write about. Mm. So who else would be the person that would be the narrator? Mm. Who would make who would make who you, you need to be better than me to be the narrator. Uh. So I don't know who that would have been in this case. You know, fraud is a global epidemic. Mm. And if you think about what you're seeing just in terms of the content that is being produced, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, or even, or even television, mm. there are so many fraud-like docu-series and shows right now. Right. Even with the Oscars, each year there has been a fraud-type movie mm. that has been nominated over the, like, the past at least three or four years. You always see a fraud-twist-type show. And I think that we as consumers are intrigued by people that are willing to just push the envelope off the table. Yeah. We might not want to do it, but we're intrigued by a person that takes that that does it, that goes all the way. Mm. And we want to know how, and we want to know why and how they were caught. And so I think that we're just intrigued by it. 
In the research that I've done about you, Kelly, it, it has become apparent that you are a desired person. Now, really, with your education background, with what you know about accounting, with forensic accounting practice as a, as a backdrop, and now with your films, you are becoming someone who is seen as a go-to person for this information. Your film or films have found a way to sustainability that I think is important for, for my doc filmmaking audience to understand about. And that is that your film hasn't gone a particularly traditional route of distribution. And in fact, it seems like perhaps it's, it's something that's maybe more sustainable. And there's a lot to us to learn from here. Your films are being seen, um, from what I understand, as part of FBI, FBI training. Um, there's <laughs> students and accreditation involved here. So help us unravel the story of, of distribution here now with all the Queen's Horses. Sure. Well, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting journey because when I started this, I, like every other filmmaker, wanted to go to Sundance or go to the Tribeca Film Festival or go to a South by Southwest or, <laughs> or, or Full Frame. And what I realized as I got rejection after rejection after rejection is that wasn't my fate. And I had and my motto with this project was I have to make my own splash. I've got to create the, my own splashes and I can't look for those those outlets to verify me. Mm. And I thought that when I started this, of course, everybody wants to know about the largest municipal fraud that happened in U.S. history. Yeah. Everyone's everyone's going to want to see this and not not really. They didn't. <laughs> yeah. So it was it, it was upon me to make this happen. Mm. And it was, and so I think that um, after I got probably 25 rejections, yeah. I just figured out, Kelly, you got to do something mm. because you can't sit and wait and wait and wait to get email after email of rejection and no and no feedback. Mm. So. Um, and where where are you when you're talking about rejection? Are you specifically talking about film festivals or are you talking, talking about distribution? I'm, I'm talking about film festival rejection. Yeah. I'm talking about reporters not wanting to report on the that the trailer was coming out. Uh, every type of rejection that you can think of, I've gotten. Yeah. Every type. And so I realized that I'm not a traditional filmmaker. Mm. I'm not in anybody's network. I'm outside of it all. I am truly an outsider. So I don't have any big producer name on my film you know I, I don't have a you know I, I don't have any of that I don't have a big granting agency behind me that pushed me along to to get me noticed I didn't do any major labs so you know I, I didn't have any of that and I realized that without any of that that was impacting my ability to get to the next level yeah so I, I had to I had to put those dreams aside and figure out how I was going to make it on my own. So when we um, we decided that after going the reporter route to see if a reporter would take the trailer and report on it, yeah. we decided to just release it on Facebook. Ah. And we released the trailer on Facebook. And in four days, our trailer had been viewed 140,000 times wow. in four days. Wow. It had been shared 2,500 times in four days. And so when I started seeing that this is going to be an organic way that mm. this is going to grow, mm. I didn't feel the need to um, be validated by those places anymore because I was really down and depressed about it because I thought, you know, I had done all this work. This is an amazing story. Of course, everyone's going to care. It's applicable to every place. But so what? They didn't care about that. Mm. So, you know, it was really important to me to make my own splash. And so when I saw the the um, the response to the trailer, I knew that I had something. And so the the I think what's important when you make a film is you have to truly understand who your core groups are that care. And for me, it was the fraud community. It was the audit community. It was accountants. But the, the community that I had no idea that cared so much about this topic was the horse community. Oh, wow. And they, and they are a global community. Mm. I get requests from New Zealand, Australia, China, uh, Canada, everywhere. Can the film come here? I know Rita. I showed with Rita. I purchased oh, a horse. Wow. I purchased a horse saddle. This 
was a global story. And so I did not realize I underestimated that aspect of the reach of that community. So that's what really made the story grow and grow and grow. And so um, we uh, were lucky enough to secure a um, distributor. So Gravitas Ventures is our video on demand distributor. Mm-hmm. And um, one of our the executive producers on the project, um, Ivy Walker, um, it, well, two of our executive producers actually made the introduction and made this happen, Ivy Walker and Justin Dearborn. And so um, that's so when Gravitas looked at the project, they were like, oh yeah, this is a no-brainer. This is an evergreen project. We definitely want this. Mm. And so I think that what I learned is that the lens of the film festival director is very different from the lens of the video on-demand distributor. And you have to understand that. So although your film may do well in festivals, that doesn't necessarily mean that the general population wants to see it. For sure. So... I had I had to understand that that this process was going to be very organic for me, and it has been. You know, just to give you just to current day, um, yesterday was uh, March nineteenth, and we had a screening at Downers Grove, Downers Grove, Illinois, at the Travoli Theater. It was a Monday night. Mm, wow. Monday night, there were approximately nine hundred people that paid to come see. All the Queen's horses on a Monday night. Fantastic. And yet, and yet, and still, yesterday I got a film festival rejection from the River Run Film Festival in Winston Salem because <laughs> <laughs> people don't want to see it, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's just, it, it's what it is. I'll tell you, we were at the That's Beloit great. International Film Festival, hmm. and the Beloit International Film Festival, beautiful, wonderful festival in Beloit, Wisconsin, and um, so we were, we they asked us to submit to the festival, yeah, and so they um, put two screenings down for All the Queen's Horses. They put two screenings down. Those immediately sold out. They added two more. Those immediately sold out. They added two more. Those immediately sold out. They added two more. The the seventh one sold out. The eighth one they moved to the movie theater. And I think that almost was full too. And so, you know, but yet and still, I still get film festival rejections. And so what I just realized is that the, the lens of the director may be very different than what the consumer may desire to see. And so I just couldn't validate myself by that anymore. And, I, and it was hard. It was a very hard process and a very real process. Amazing, amazing. I think that's going to be extremely helpful to to our audience to hear that. I think one thing that you are underselling here, or at least I would like to point out, Kelly, is that while you may have felt like sort of you were on the outside or you were an outsider in terms of the film, um, film community, I... I would say that what you did have in spades is you had insider information. You had passion on the topic. It's like you said earlier, Kelly, who better to speak upon this topic or to narrate than you yourself, somebody who's so close to the material and knows it like the back of your hand. So I think that's a very important part of this. Yeah, I I, I do. I think it is too, because um, having a direct connection to the story, but it not being a personal story, yeah. I think was important. And and that's that's another unique characteristic. I'm in the film, yeah. but the film isn't about me. Right. I'm 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 in the film just like any other expert would be in the film. Mm-hmm. So I'm in it, but I'm outside of it in the same way. Mm. So it's not my personal story. And so um I think that in terms of having a life, a life outside of or longevity outside of just the film right i think having a direct connection to what you're talking about is important because it's not just a story for me it is what i do so my q a's are very different from what i've heard from just different film festival directors <laughs> because people are coming with genuine questions about how do i spot this how do i yeah, protect myself right, right. i don't want this to happen to me versus talking about the cinematography aspects of the film. Yeah. They're not talking about that. They're actually talking about the story because they don't want it to happen to them. Yeah. So it's truly an experience for the viewer as it is a, um, I'm just watching a movie because they're thinking about what if this were me? What if this were my town? What yeah. if this were my organization? Sure. What would I do? 
Kelly, tell us how outreach played a part in all of this, because I've got to believe that outreach was very important for you in getting this film out as well. Well, you know, outreach, again, has been very organic Mm -hmm. um, because um, one of the things that I just did not have the stamina to do any longer was I didn't apply for any outreach grants because I could not deal with the rejection anymore. I just couldn't (laughs) do it. I couldn't. I just I Mm. could not because after, you know, we've won um, two HBO Best Documentary Awards at two different film festivals. We won. the Golden Laurels Award at the Beloit International Film Festival. Mm. And then there's something else. There's a whole line of Equus film festivals, so horse-themed film wow. festivals. yeah, right. And I, and I actually won the Best Equestrian Director Award <laughs> called the Winnie Award <laughs> at the Equus Film Festival in, in Midtown, Manhattan. Fantastic. And so after coming off of that, and, and having that level of success and interest from people, yeah. I just could not go back to the process of writing grants oh, man. and and getting rejected from yeah. that all yeah. over again. I just, I felt like I had taken enough. Hmm. And so I knew, I just knew my personality because I, I'm, I'm sort of the kind of person that you do the work and what the reward that comes from doing the work comes. And this yeah. is not as linear as how I'm tip, how I typically operate. Right, right. And so I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So our outreach again has been very organic. Um, we do a lot of community screenings and we find yep. um, sponsors. But because of my topic, yeah. I can go and call a bank and say, Bank A, would you go? Would you would you give a couple thousand dollars? to bring this film to the area so we can have four community screenings wow. at the local theater. Wow. Because okay. of the topic, yeah. it allows you to do that. So I needed a process where I knew the answer would be yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. I just, I just couldn't. So I'm very cautious about what I will put myself in the line of fire for now mm. because of just, I just felt, I've just felt so beat up through the whole process. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it's occurring to me now, like I, I'm curious, Kelly, as you move forward in your next films, are you going to be very conscious or even do you, if not conscious, will it happen subconsciously where you're taking on material maybe with less the story in mind and more about where are the audience is for this? Do I know that it can reach this and this and this audience? Does that make sense? I'm curious how that might affect your decision in terms of the types of film projects you might take on in the future. Well, you know, I can't see myself um, taking on something that is completely outside of my wheelhouse. So, for example, I can't see myself all of a sudden doing a movie about sex trafficking. Hmm. You know, although very important topic, I need to to have a a true connection to the film. So I don't want to just I don't want to just produce films that I don't have a um, any knowledge of, you know, but I think the area of fraud lends itself to so many different disciplines. So, mm. for example, I've explored doing a food fraud documentary because, you know, there's oh, wow. a whole lot of food fraud, <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of it. So, you know, there's um, so I think because the, the topic is so um, can be so general, mm. I don't have to. I don't have to go too far outside of where I naturally feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's um, there's some really good insight and lessons in there in terms of, you know, working on material that you really feel strongly about. Um, I've talked here on the show that I have taken on projects. One of the things that I struggle with is I can intellectualize what is a perhaps a great film idea and then get all about it and get into the film and then I realize a couple perhaps a couple of years down the road or maybe even a couple of months who knows that what I thought was a great story idea may still be that but I've lost interest maybe in telling that story because I don't really have a personal connection mm-hmm. to it. I just thought it was a great idea and I thought mm-hmm. that people would want to see it. And I know that there's a lesson in there, certainly for me and, and for others. And I envy people like yourself who have been able to organically come around to the types of stories that you're telling as a filmmaker based on what you know about yourself and what you know about your interests and your passions. 
Well, and, and I think um, to your point, I think it, it, because I have this other field, you know, I'm, I'm a professor. I think um, I'm, I, I'm able to say the, this is the kind of project that I want to do because I have another life. Um, and I, I, what I've tried to really do is try to merge those two lives. But I, I want to make sure that the kinds of things that I pursue are naturally aligned with who I am. So it makes mm. sense why she should be telling the story. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, and that was important for me. But I know, you know, that's definitely a personal choice. Whatever is driving us or attracting us to our stories, we should figure out how to explode that into, you know, our connection mm-hmm. and, and, and learning as much as we can about whatever is driving us to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, because time is of my essence, I have two small kids and a husband. I try to make <laughs> everything work. So if I'm teaching about fraud and I'm doing a movie about fraud uh, and I have a podcast about fraud yeah. and my research writings are about fraud, I'm really doing the same thing over and over and over. And every time I'm doing it, I'm learning a little bit more about the next thing, hmm. but it all helps towards that same common goal. Hmm. And so it's really my effort at being as efficient as I possibly can. Because if I was doing a film about, let's use sex trafficking, and then another film about parachuting and then another film about um life in nevada you know none of that's in three different directions and so for me in the way i have to organize my life that's not efficient for me yeah right so this this model for me is efficient and so a lot of times people will ask me gosh kelly you know you you seem like you're all over the place how do you have time to do all these things and i said actually it's the same thing over and over and over Mm. just in different platforms so my blog article on my Forbes blog mm. about whistleblowing is the same thing that oh, my yeah. TEDx talk was mm. about whistleblowing, which is the same thing all the Queen's Horses is, which is about whistleblowing, which is the same as my talk that I did at, this, at Harvard. It's about whistleblowing. It's all the same thing. Mm. So it's a way to stay more efficient for me. Kelly, can you send me some links to those, like the TED Talks? Uh, yeah, the block because sure. what I'm going to do, Kelly, is I'm going to go ahead and and definitely post links to uh, a number of those. We're going to post those in the show notes because I Hold would up. love for for my listeners to be able to further explore some of this that you're talking about. Um, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. You have since parlayed some of this, uh, as you just briefly mentioned there as well, into a podcast called Nothing But the Truth. How did the podcast come about for you? The podcast came about, again, back to that rejection. Um, The podcast came about because I have tons of content. Like, I have so much content, Chris. I could do another film. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I had the funding. (laughs) I have tons of, tons of felon interviews, tons, that I could put together in a segment. But, you know, I need funding for an editor. I need funding for a graphic artist. I need funding for for sound. And I just said, you know what? There's got to be a a way to uh, get get to story where I could do it in a more cost efficient way, but still as engaging. And so that's where I thought about nothing but the truth. Um, When I was at Harvard and did the screening at the Kennedy school of government, Mm. um, I brought my sound designer, my sound editor, Tim Edson with me and we recorded the, we recorded live while we were there. So one of our bonus episodes that we just launched last week Mm. is this bonus track, you know, at Harvard Kennedy school Q and a, so it's myself, Gordon Quinn, um, Harvard business school professor, Eugene Soltes and Harvard business school professor, Max Bazerman. And you, it's, it's an amazing 30 minute segment of just the Q and a after you've seen the film. So now what I do is when I, I go to these audiences and I show the film, I'm like, okay, guys, now that you've seen the film, go to iTunes, go yeah. to Google Play, Perfect. and listen to this podcast episode. It's a bonus edition. It's a QA. and yeah. When we were in Dixon, Illinois, we went, we have, we've been to Dixon twice, and we've done two, um, two different episode or segments of yeah. community screenings for them. Okay. This last episode when we were there, we um, were there a full day. We did four screenings on a Saturday. We saw 2,000 people, a little over 2,000 people that came out to see the film. Yeah. And so what we did is we recorded for the podcast. So now there is a 
audience response to the people that the fraud was impacted by, the Dixon residents. So you hear them not only asking questions to me, um, Jason Modillo, chief inspector for the U.S. Marshal Service, came with me. So this is all captured in audio now. Whoa. So not only can you hear from me, hmm. you can hear from the people's responses yeah. that this fraud impacted. So this is a way to make the film and the story live on and reach more people. That's amazing. What I, I love that concept and extension of of really outreach with your film that as a doc filmmaker and in this case you're 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 applying it you're bringing a Q&A from a, from a screening and 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 you're extending that now into your podcast you're extending the film and and the availability of information surrounding that film I love it that's so cool well, I'll tell you another reason why I did it was because I was thinking I have a lot of footage that we didn't use mm. for um, for the um, film. Yeah. And I wanted to apply. I was thinking about applying to the New York Times Op Docs program. Mm. And I've really been thinking about it. But you know what, Chris? Yeah. I can't take any more rejection. So <laughs> I said, let me do this podcast and just get it out there. I don't need to be verified by these groups anymore. I can yeah. take this and do it myself and I can share it and get it out. And, you know, I think I, I looked this morning at just the podcast statistics and, you know, we released it on Thursday and yeah. 225 people have downloaded it. But, yeah. you know, that it's not 2 million, but, you know, it's a start. It's yeah. a start. That's amazing. I love it. Such an inspiring story this conversation has been. Kelly, how can we see your film? How can we see All the Queen's Horses? Well, it comes out on video on demand April 10th. So um, it will be on a ton of platforms. Yeah. iTunes, Amazon Prime, um, DirecTV, PlayStation, Vimeo, um, Cox. Yeah. Um, there's a, a ton of um, platforms, and I'm happy to share just the, the flyer with you if you if you Please want. Because yeah. it's about 20 different platforms, okay. but it's coming it's coming to a TV near you very soon. Yep, fantastic! What a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the program, and we'd love to have you on again at some point, perhaps talking about uh, your podcast, Nothing But the Truth. This was great, and you know I, I really appreciate the opportunity, um, and I hope people learn something. It's it's tough. It's a tough road. I mean, it's been a tough road. It really has. So I hope I hope I was positive enough. <laughs> <laughs> you were. And I think that there's a lot to glean from this conversation that's going to be helpful for a lot of people out there. So thank you again. Yeah, make your own splash. That's been my motto. <laughs> Damn right. Damn right. <laughs> you know, you have to. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And I think that that's a, such a huge part of what's come out of this conversation. I really do. Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.